Welcome to Don't Retire, Graduate, the podcast that teaches you how to advance into retirement rather than retreating. I'm your host and valedictorian, Eric Brotman, and today we have a special guest and a longtime friend, Dr. Mary Bell Carlson. Dr. Carlson's a financial behavior expert. She's worked in both the military and government communities for the last decade. From the bowels of the Pentagon to international audiences, Dr. Carlson's presented numerous financial seminars and worked on a variety of financial planning and education projects. After getting married and having her two daughters, she started ChiefFinancialMom.com, a personal finance education platform to help busy moms. Currently, she also works as adjunct faculty for the financial planning programs at both the University of Georgia and Texas Tech University. Mary, welcome. Welcome to Don't Retire, Graduate. Thank you so much. It's great being here, Eric. So your, your, your credentials are beyond reproach. Um, you've got more education than just about anybody in our field. Uh, in fact, you're the first person I knew personally to go through the PhD program in financial planning. So let's learn first a little bit about you and your history and how you, you married both uh, financial planning and academia uh, to build your career. Absolutely. I'll, get, I'll take us way back. Um, clear back in high school, I was a bank teller for my local bank. And I remember being a senior and people asking me that, I don't know, hated question, I guess is probably the way to say it of what are you going to do in college? And I had no clue, but I knew that I liked people and I knew that I liked money, but I had no idea this thing called financial planning even existed. And so off I set off to my undergrad and to get a degree in finance. And that long, long story made very short was it did not work out. I ended up switching schools from BYU over to Texas Tech and finding this thing called financial planning. And they actually had a degree. They had an undergraduate, a master's and a PhD program. And I took the intro class and absolutely fell in love with it and just thought this is what I was made for. I went ahead and graduated from BYU with my undergrad in political science and then went back and finished my master's degree in financial planning and then set off with a one-way ticket to Washington, D.C. to find a job. And it wasn't necessarily that he even wanted to go into financial planning. I'd really fallen in love with this thing called financial education and financial counseling specifically because I really enjoyed people and how people worked, financial psychology as we kind of call it today. But that didn't exist 20 years ago. And so I came out here, worked for FPA for some time as a lobbyist and really got into that financial education world. And then fast forward, I did some wealth management stints, found out that I did not love wealth management and decided to go over to the Pentagon. Got an opportunity to work with the military for about three years at the top level. And I flew all over the world delivering financial education uh, to service members and specifically service providers for the military. And during that time, I was kind of coming up upon my end of three years, and I just had this inkling in the back of my mind, like, you need to go back and get a PhD, which let me just tell you now, I thought I was lucky just to get an undergraduate. So I had never any intentions in my life to get a PhD, but I had a wonderful professor named Dottie Durbin who told me when the student is ready, the teacher is willing. Mm. 
And that had stuck with me for a long time. And I felt like that was kind of my time. It was my calling to kind of go back. And I naively thought it was going to be a master's on steroids. Well, it turned out nothing like that. I did little to no financial planning, um, specifically when we think of financial planning, investments, retirement, college planning, taxes, kind of things. And I did everything around research and statistics. And so it was a whole different world, a lot of more writing, a lot of research, really understanding how research works and how to apply research. And so after about three and a half years at Kansas State, I finished my PhD and then set back here. I live right outside of Washington, D.C. and have been here really ever since. And I've worked in and out of everything from academia to associations. I've done quite a few um, contracts with the government, both in the intelligence world and in the military world. And it's just worked out really well for me and my lifestyle to uh, really marry up this idea of financial planning, not just the practice of it, but really what we call practice management, or I like to say, the psychology behind it of what how people think, how people react, and how money plays a role in all of that. Mary, you talk about behavior and psychology, and I think behavioral finance is one of the most fascinating fields to come about in the last couple of decades. And, you know, mm-hmm. I've been doing this almost 30 years, which is disturbing in some way to me. <laughs> uh, I don't feel that old, but nonetheless, I'm, I'm pretty experienced now. Um, but you talk about in your, in your education, you, you talk a lot about not only uh, military families and, and how financial decisions are impacted by their military service, but also ways that women treat money differently than men do. And I'd love to dive into that. You know, Mother's Day is coming. We're going to get into Chief Financial Mom, I promise. But can we talk a little bit about how women and men treat money differently and maybe some of the things we need to look for, um, not only as advisors, but specifically as consumers and as partners in life, where those differences come to play? Yeah, Eric, this is a great question. And it's not only great for consumers, but also for financial planners that are listening to this. There was a recent study by McKinsey and Company um, from 2020, and it talks about the massive asset shift that is going to take place over the next eight years. And they are anticipating that by the year of 2030, there will be $30 trillion that are going to be owned, most of it will be owned and controlled by women. That's gonna be a lot of the shift. The baby boomer men are going to, as they pass away, then the women are going to be uh, holding most of those assets. And this is a big, big change from what to see today. Today, about 10 trillion is in uh, full control of women, but they're expecting a, a large change over the next eight years. Another really interesting statistic too, is that 70% of those women are going to change their advisors within one year of their partner passing. And I think this speaks a lot for a couple of things. One for advisors, Advisors have to start paying attention to women. A lot of times, even in our office setup and the way we design our office space, it's meant to have a direct conversation with really one person. And typically, it's a male advisor. Most of our industry is is men. And often, they're talking to the male on the other side of the table, uh, where women typically either aren't in the room, or if they are, they're really not engaged with it. Um, And I think this is going to be a big loss and a big change within the industry. 
And let's go back to your question, Eric, when you said, how do women actually manage money differently than men? In this same study that McKinsey uh, released, they make a few big points. Uh, One is women have a much greater focus on real life goals, whereas men are really more focused on the numbers. They're focused more on net worth and how those numbers look. Women are really wanting those life goals. They want that satisfaction and connection back to family. It's much more relational for women. A second way in which women are different than men is women are wanting more help with the day-to-day cash management. Men are much more do-it-yourself type as a whole, but they were found in the study that many more times uh, women wanted that day-to-day help. As this has been replicated in many different areas, women typically have a lower risk tolerance than men, but they also have a greater demand for advice, for financial advice specifically. And they're actually two times more likely than men to pay for financial advice. So they want help and they want that connection, but they're more interested in the relationship with the advisor than they are of how smart the advisor is or how much that advisor knows. So I think this is going to be a big shift that we're going to see in the industry. And I think there's going to be a big demand for women to be heard and to be seen and to be really recognized in our industry by financial advisors. I'm incredibly enthusiastic about this change because uh, first of all, I think that financial plan, I've often said financial planning is a verb, not a noun. It's a process um, and not a thing, but also that the qualitative pieces are often so much more important and so much more impactful than the quantitative pieces of planning that I think women naturally make better financial advisors than men do. And there are obviously exceptions to that and, and there's nuance, but um, you know, in our office, we've maintained roughly a 50, 50 split between male and female advisors, not so much on purpose as we just find great people and they do great work and they happen to be diverse. But mm-hmm. you know, the, the clients who are, uh, you know, women, women anecdotally, um, and I think through various studies, so I can't quote them, I think women are more loyal as clients too than men, so long as they're being respected and heard and listened to and feel like they're getting a good experience. Have you mm-hmm. seen that as well? Yeah, for women, it really is about the relationship. And that's where behavioral finance, as you mentioned earlier, comes into place. It's about the connection. I heard this the other day, it's more about relational than it is transactional. And that is so true for women in the financial space. They they want to understand it, but they also want to make sure that it's meeting their family goals. They're, they're connected to other people and their relationships with them, as well as their advisor. It's important to have those relationships all across the way. And this is whether it's end of life planning, or if it's just the beginning and you have a young professional in your office, it doesn't matter. It's all about relationships. Let's shift to financial education, because for most of the country, financial education we receive is nil. It's not that it's not very good, it's that it's not present. It's not taught in most schools, and where it is, it's sporadic, and it certainly is not uh, getting a whole lot of quality control. Um, You can graduate from college, have uh, $200,000 in student loans and a credit card balance for that ski trip you wanted to take freshman year. You can't balance a checkbook, but you've got a college degree, and I don't understand why we continue to ignore what is one of the most important life skills involved in adulting, why aren't we teaching this and and what's the best way to change that? 
It's a good question. And this has been a question that's been in place for several decades now uh, at the top levels. So one of my first jobs, as I mentioned, I worked for the Financial Planning Association straight out of my master's degree. And I really love this field of financial education. Well, the Treasury had recently at that time started a roundtable of all of the most senior leadership in all of the different various federal agencies that had financial education programs, which honestly is just about every every agency had something. And they would get around the table at least once a quarter, they still do those meetings, and we would be in the treasury cash room discussing how this can be implemented. One of the individuals that I've met over the years through that and many other situations is a woman named Laura Levine who runs Jumpstart. And Jumpstart is a nonprofit organization that works on specifically advancing financial literacy and education in K through 12. And they have incredible resources. Their website is jumpstart.org, and they have a tremendous amount of resources for not just educators or advocates, but also for parents. And I think one of my favorites is something called checkyourschool.org, and it's a place where parents can actually go and see if your school is teaching financial literacy in the curriculum. And if not, it's a way they have a direct connection to reach out to the educators or the principal of that school and encourage that. And I think that's a really important aspect uh, is to be able to get in the schools and to teach. Uh, I happen to homeschool my children as well, and we even do it within our curriculum. So I am starting to see it more and more in curriculums. We're starting to see it statewide in some states. It depends on where you live, if it's included or not. But I am hopeful that this is a changing tide and that it isn't going to be what you and I saw 30 or 40 years ago, Eric. I hope that's true because it's getting more complicated. I mean, the financial world is not a, it's not a place necessarily for the timid and mistakes can be um, exponential ones. So Mm -hmm. it's really important to get, to get started on the right foot. And, you know, what we've tried to do as an organization at BFG is create financial literacy resources and push some things out that are free that, that, that consumers can get to. Uh, you mentioned Jumpstart. I'm also, also a big fan of Junior Achievement. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these organizations that do some career type skills and some financial literacy type skills, they exist. There just isn't a cohesive piece. Yep. And I have yet to meet a single human being who thinks financial literacy shouldn't be taught in schools. I don't know one person who says, what a terrible idea. Everyone says, that is a great idea. Who's going to do it and how? Right. And what's it going to replace? It even starts at home, right? I mean, this is a bit of a chicken and an egg problem because we talk about, well, it should be taught in schools. But at the end of the day, a lot of teachers don't know about it themselves or they feel timid or reluctant themselves because they aren't managing their own personal finance as well. Same thing is true of parents. You just asked a great question, who's going to teach it? If a parent feels shame or embarrassment around their personal finances, they don't necessarily want to pass that on to their children. And so most Most of us just don't talk about it and ignore it and pretend that it's going to go away. And yet all that does is continue to sow the seed of generational financial illiteracy that is passed on again and again. And if you want to change the past, you start right now in the present. And you start by talking about money. And it doesn't have to be a taboo topic. It needs to just start with a conversation. One of my favorite things to work with clients on is money history. 
So it's a very easy way to start a conversation of how did you grow up with money? What was it like to you? Even when I got married, actually, my husband and I learned quickly. I asked him a lot of these questions and we quickly learned that we came from two very different worlds. And how he related to a dollar was very different than how I did. And he remembers times of not having enough food on the table. He remembers sleeping in his car. He remembers being without well more than I ever did. And so it's very interesting how those early, early childhood memories play into his well-being, financial well-being specifically, 40 years later. And it still impacts how he handles money to this day. And so that's a great place to start if you want to start talking about money is start talking about your money history. There's a lot of baggage that comes with money and you use the word Uh shame. Um, I I think people are mostly embarrassed of their money, whether they have a whole lot of it and think that's embarrassing or whether they don't have as much as they think they should because their neighbors look like they have more money. I mean, there's, Mm -hmm. there's so much baggage around it. And we do learn these lessons from our parents, and it's rare that they're taught to us. It's more that we observe them, because money is one of the things couples fight about most. I mean, it it causes more, I think, money and kids are the things that couples fight about. And so if you grow up watching your parents fight about who spent what at the grocery store, you're going to carry that with you. And then you're going to enter a marriage, and your partner grew up seeing those kinds of things with money. And it's just, you're right, it's a snowball effect. And the only way to nip that in the bud is to create a a safe space to have this discussion where it's not taboo um, and to learn some of the basics. I I don't understand how young people are expected to make giant financial decisions before they're old enough to go to their local bar. I don't get it. Yeah. I mean, they're making student loan decisions that are catastrophically expensive and, you know, they're barely old enough to drive or vote. And they're making these huge financial decisions that are going to be with them for 30 years. Mm-hmm. And it just Absolutely. seems like a terrible idea. These banks, these banks, Mary, will lend to young people who have no collateral to get an education, but they won't lend to those same young people who want to start a business. Entrepreneurs can't get capital from a bank. I don't get it. Yep. yep. Well, and I think it was discussed in your most recent podcast where he talked about what it would be like if you don't go to an Ivy League education and how those numbers actually stack up pretty relatively. And now I'm not advocating here for us not going to school or or not getting an education. I do think an education is vitally important. But what I think is even more important is how you handle money. And when I say you, I'm looking directly at you, listener. Um, That is to be said is how do you think about it. How do you talk about it? Just start your own discovery process through this. You know, Eric, you mentioned that the fights about money are some of the most prevalent fights uh, that in children. There's actually research to back that up. Britain do uh, research out of BYU and, and Kansas State from years ago came out to say that money fights are the biggest indicator for divorce than any other topic there. And so with that, it is really important that you're not passing that on generationally down, because just as you said, if that's how they, the, your children see it's normalized, is it's okay to fight about it, then they're going to continue that cycle. And I've seen this, Eric, not just on the fighting side, I've seen it on the bankruptcy side. I know that when I had some clients several years back, 
they came in that I worked with government workers that had to have a security clearance. And they would come through, and if there were financial issues or something along those lines, and they were in risk of losing their security clearance, they were sent to me. And so there was a couple a while back that said, hey, we've got some problems. I kind of started to uncover it, and they were pretty close to bankruptcy again. And as I started to talk to them more about it, come to find out, it wasn't just the first or second time they've declared bankruptcy, but actually, both sets of parents on both sides had declared bankruptcy multiple times, so much so that one set of parents actually moved to Mexico to live more cheaply and to be able to get away from their debt. And so I told them at that time, I said, if you don't want to pass this on to your children, you have to do something about this now. Otherwise, that generational bankruptcy issue is going to be passed down and continued for multiple generations until someone decides to stop and relearn and move forward where it needs to happen. Sage advice, sage advice. I wanna talk about your website. I wanna sure. talk about chieffinancialmom.com because I, I think it's a very cool idea and um, I think it suits you to a T and I, I think you have the t-shirt and if you don't, I think that you should be selling them. That could be definitely some of the merch on your site. So tell, tell everybody who's listening about chieffinancialmom.com and, and who it's designed to help and, and how. You bet. Just like it says in the name, it's for moms. And I'll even back up and tell you a little story about how I, it came to be. I was pregnant with my first daughter. And at, right after I delivered, I remember being up really early in the morning or late at night when you've got a newborn, as many of you know, that those hours just kind of meld together and you're awake during all of them. And I remember scrolling on my phone through my emails and all I had was these advertisements, specifically as a mom, as a new mom, right? They know how to get your email. They know how to get your number essentially and really market towards you. And I remember listening to this and being like, where is the good stuff? Where is the education? Just like you mentioned a minute ago, Eric, is where do we learn about money? Because all I'm seeing is buy, buy, buy. And it, I looked and I couldn't find anything that really suited that niche. And so that's where I started chief financial mom is I thought, well, I hear I have a PhD and I teach at a university. And yet, I can do more, I can give back. And so it's my way of giving back to my community, to other moms that are interested in learning more of not just doing it yourself, but even learning enough to go and hire a financial advisor. In fact, one thing on the website, and I'll send you a link for it, Eric, for your listeners, is I've got questions, a little booklet to ask, what questions do you ask a financial advisor when you go to hire one? And how do you know which is a good and bad financial advisor? And I think those are the things that are empowering to moms is being able to know what questions to ask and, and in what way, what is good, what is bad. So less on the technical side, but more, much more on the relational side and just being okay with where you're at. There's no shame. There's no guilt. There's no, I should have known. It is what it is. And it, you are what you are today and it's okay and so bringing all of that with you and saying let's make a change and make myself a little better for tomorrow is what chief financial mom does for moms well i first of all please do send that link we'll put it in our show notes uh, and i hope our listeners will check out chieffinancialmom.com 
Um, tell us about uh, Real Money, Real Experts, because you're hosting a podcast too. And so for folks who are uh, enthusiastic about hearing more from you, that's a great place for them to check you out as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Real Money, Real Experts started a couple of years ago, and it's with the Association for Financial Counseling and Planning Education, or AFCPE. And it's specifically for those financial coaches, counselors, educators, or someone interested in getting in that space. We just finished this week our career segment. We've been going through the last six months of what careers are in this space and how to get into them. Um, We've also done a number of interviews around financial empathy, uh, relational money, how to start your own business, or what it's like. We just interviewed Laura Levine that I just mentioned earlier on Jumpstart um, to talk about financial education and where it goes. So we'd love for you to check it out and love any questions that you would have for us in return. Well, we are getting dangerously close to the end of our show, and I want to make sure as the educator you are, that you give us a doozy of an extra credit assignment. Um, our, our listeners, the students of this program, don't want homework, so don't give them a homework assignment. We need an extra credit assignment that can help them ace this course. So um, what would you suggest would be the first step or the first takeaway um, from our time together today? Absolutely. Thanks for asking that. I in my classes that I teach, there is something that I always teach about. And one thing is scaling questions. If you've ever taken a class from me, you know what a scaling question is. On a scale from one to 10, one being a horrible experience, 10 being a great experience, how did this work for you today? Now, what I what this can be used to, it can be used with your children, it can be used as a financial advisor, communicating with client, it can be used in almost any situation. But my favorite part is not actually the number that the person gives you, right? The most important part is the follow-up question. And that is, what is one thing that you could do today to move up even half a point on that scale? And that, I think, is the, where the real change happens. So all of us are overwhelmed. All of us have too much on our plates and we're too busy. But if you've taken the time to listen to just this few minutes, there may be something in here that's kind of giving you a little inkling or something you're curious about or something you want to check out. I would encourage you to do that thing, whatever it was that resonated with you, and just that one thing to help you be a little better, be a little smarter, move yourself up on that scale, just even half a point so that you know more tomorrow than you know today. I love that advice. And that gives me the opportunity to put you on the spot and say, well, on a scale of one to 10, Mary, how did this interview work for you today? I loved it. I would definitely give it a 10, Eric. <laughs> well, and what, what could you do to make it a 10 and a half? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Do it in person. Listen, How's that? that's what extra credit's all about. Oh, that would have been great. So, uh, all right. Well, I, I thank you for joining us. You've been a great guest. How, how can people find you? And we know about chieffinancialmom.com. Are there other places where you can be found online that, that, that folks should check out? Absolutely. For the consumer facing side, you can find me on Instagram through Chief Financial Mom and Facebook both. Uh, for professionals that are looking at more consulting, I do have a consulting business and you can find me through that on LinkedIn and on Twitter as Mary Bell Consult. You're a busy human. Thanks for taking uh, some time out of your day to help our audience graduate into retirement. I thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
I'd also like to thank all of you for listening today. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate our podcast on Spotify or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Please also check out our books, workbooks, and online financial literacy resources at BrotmanMedia.com. We'll be back next week with another installment of Office Hours and in two weeks with another engaging guest. For now, this is your host, Eric Brotman, reminding you, don't retire, graduate. From this day forward, let us begin changing the way we view retirement. Today, I implore you, don't retire, graduate. Visit our website at BrotmanMedia.com to subscribe. And please like us and post comments on social media. Securities offered through Kestra Investment Services, LLC. Kestra IS, member FINRA, SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Kestra Advisory Services, LLC. Kestra AS, an affiliate of Kestra IS. Kestra IS or Kestra AS are not affiliated with Brotman Financial or any other entity discussed. Hi, my name is Sarah, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com.